Okay, well, uh, I'm very, very excited for this discussion today. So uh, very lucky, we, we are very lucky to be joined by Ben Modell, um, who is the founder and uh, president for Undercrank Productions, uh, and amongst many other things, which we'll very shortly dive into. But Ben, thank you so much for joining today. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. I'm really, I'm really glad to be on the show. Yeah, of course. And kind of have a special treat for you as well. Uh, for, for anybody who's heard a few week, few months back, we interviewed Kirk McDowell from the George Eastman Museum and Library. And once Kirk found out that we were interviewing Ben, uh, we, we got excited about the idea of Kirk coming back on and being able to actually have uh, his love of silent film and, and classic cinema uh, kind of represented here with Ben. So Kirk, thanks so much for joining as well. It's great to be back. <laughs> All right. Awesome. Uh, so I think, you know, Right out of the gate, uh, Ben, obviously I introduced you as as founding Undercrank Productions. Uh, and from the, the focus of this podcast is, and, and the initial kind of idea was to talk to physical media companies. So that's why I wanted to introduce you that way. Obviously, the world knows you as many things uh, yeah. <laughs> around silent films. So, you know, I'm curious to hear if, as you moved from being the world's leading silent film accompanist, did I say it right? Yeah, yeah, that's that's fine. <laughs> okay. To uh, then getting the idea to actually start producing your own discs, um, can can you just kind of give maybe a little background into how that started and and, yeah. and what you're what you're trying to do with Undercranks? I think that's really interesting. Yeah, um, like like a lot of things that I get involved with, I I started out just seeing uh, if I could do it, and oh, let's see. It looks like I could do this and take this and put it with this and make it look like this and put it out this way. And what do you know? And then it kind of snowballs from there, the way the silent comedy watch party, you know, the second week of March of 2020. I thought, you know, nobody's nobody can leave their house. And I, I actually have all the tech I need to put this together. Let's see if it works. And then, you know, uh, our second anniversary show, episode 78, is coming up in March. So... It's it's become this big this big thing that I never planned, but it just sort of happened. I I've always been really interested in how DVDs and and I guess and then eventually also Blu-rays how how home video gets made and distributed. Mm -hmm. And I've always been interested in marketing and uh, publicity, and have had great opportunities over the years. Uh, to talk with people who were uh, the publicist at the MoMA's film department or somewhere else and just picking their brains and finding out how that sort of thing works. Just very interested in things like uh, marketing and promotion as well as uh, just the nuts and bolts of how a DVD gets made. And there's... there's uh, I started with a bunch of silent films that I had sitting on my shelf. I had won these things on eBay. A couple of them had come to me from other sources, but they were the only copies around of these films or the only copies that circulated. Oh, wow. And so I had them and I, you know, I've been doing something called the silent clowns film series, which I, I launched with a guy named Bruce Lawton in 1997 and also uh it's it, now it's me and steve massa when we're in person who we get up and we co-host the shows i play the, the 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 piano uh bruce does the programming 
But I had accumulated a lot of these comedy shorts thinking, oh, they would get to be shown either at the Silent Clowns Film Series or at the uh, the festival called Slapsticon that also no longer exists. Uh, and they never really got shown, but they were still the only copies or rare copies. And I felt like if I have these films and nobody can see them, then they're still lost. Uh, and there's really not much difference between throwing them in the garbage can <laughs> and the films yeah. not, and not having the films. So I, 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 I figured out the I had by this point, this is 2012. I'd figured out the nuts and bolts to get things transferred or scanned. Um, I'd done a lot of research and, and this is into two, a few things. One of them was crowdfunding. So Kickstarter was just starting to tip at that okay. point. Um, okay. And the notion of being directly connected to fans and as a way to make something happen as opposed to working with a giant company and having big, you know, big press releases and stuff like that. But if you're already connected to people, you let them know what you're doing, then ideally they'll, they'll, they'll jump in. And uh, it was also around this time uh, that... Uh, Louis C.K., the comedian Louis C.K., you know, self-produced a concert mm -hmm. video at the Beacon Theater out of his own pocket, made it available over his website, and made all his money back in two days. Right. Okay. <laughs> you know, charging five bucks, you could either download it or stream it. And he completely made a, 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 a an end run around the industry. And I thought, oh, well, this totally works. I mean, he, he has different kind of a fan base than I do and much bigger. And uh, so I thought, okay, I have a mailing list that I've accumulated over a number of years. And then I, I just took that idea plus Kickstarter plus Manufacture on Demand. And okay. Create Space doesn't exist anymore. Uh, but at the time, uh, Amazon had a Manufacture on Demand uh, arm called Create Space. It was for music. Uh, DVDs and books. Um, it's, I think they they pulled the plug on everything but the books last year, and the books is called Kindle Direct or something like that. But anyway, the thing that I realized is that with with Create Space, if you put a, a DVD out, it automatically gets on Amazon, and I realized also that there's no there's no like being on Amazon and really being on Amazon. So that's the one thing where the playing field is, is leveled between me and, say, Criterion. It being, you know, if you're on, you're on. And so I came up with the idea for uh, this DVD that I kickstarted um, uh, that I called Accidentally Preserved. I came up with yeah. this term. I came up with this term, which may have, maybe somebody has used it. But I, I was trying to, I have, a, I have somewhere a sheet of paper I wrote in all these names for what you could call these films where the only copy that exists uh, exists because it was made uh, in 16 millimeter prints in, in the 20s, 30s, and 40s. And I came up with Accidentally Preserved. My friend Marlene Weissman, who's a graphic designer who has been doing uh, graphics for the Silent Clowns for years, but before that, in her other life, she, in the 90s, she was a graphics person on Saturday Night Live. The Dana Carvey, Phil Hartman, Jan Hooks era of Saturday Night Live. Oh my gosh. And, okay. bef and, and before yeah. that, doing graphics for, for a Late Night with David Letterman. 
Um, so she has a, 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 a she has a great love of silent film, but also has a commercial design background. She's a brilliant artist. So what I so what I did is I I I, I built into the budget, you know, hiring her to do the box art because, as I've learned, and I tell this to everybody, um, uh, in the online world, your artwork is your first line of defense. And it has to look good. It has to look good, you know, one inch high. And it's got to look good on a mobile device. And it's got to be eye-catching. And just um, taking an old movie poster that you've right-clicked from Heritage uh, and slapping it on on the front of something, which uh, a lot of companies now do, uh, it, it doesn't really stand out. So so that the whole idea was, let, let's see if I can do this. And, it, you know, I, I learned authoring. I mean, I've been doing some DVD authoring. I got the, the films I had scanned, um, made, made the DVD. Uh, Marlene did the, the cover. And I had, I don't know, maybe 160, 170 people back the project. And, you know, I couldn't believe it that I, I, I you know, the hardest thing about doing a, at least the first Kickstarter is getting yourself past the idea that you're asking people for money. Um, okay. If you're just a person and not a company where you go go to lunch with a bunch of hedge fund people and ask them for a lot of money, so uh -huh. that's basically what's like what started out as accidentally preserved volume one, uh, just just gradually became what under what under Crank Productions is now, where we've got twenty six twenty five titles in release as of. Um, the very beginning of March, but we'll have another one out in April. And we actually have about a half dozen other projects in production right now. Oh, and again, th this is again after, you know, two years of just not being able to do anything. I mean, it took me two years. It took me a year, more, uh, about a year to do the, the Horton project and it shouldn't have, but I just, it just was so hard to concentrate and stay focused on anything during, during COVID. Um, yeah. But and there were a number of projects I was able to percolate so that all of a sudden I've got hard drives coming to me and ProRes files are being uploaded all over the place and scores are being done. Um, so we'll have a lot of stuff out. It was not something I intended to do. I did not start tend to in, set out to start a label. And, and, and uh, But I that's what wound up happening. And what, what happened over and over was that... Um, I would hear about a film or a series of films that, boy, this is really good. This 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 should really be out there. I guess I I better produce a DVD with this, you know, because I and and that's just built up and it's it's kind of become what quote unquote what we do is uh, the films that don't have Buster Keaton or Harold Lloyd or Mary Pickford or Greta Garbo or Clara Bow in them. Uh let Criterion and uh, uh, you know Kino Lorber and Flicker Alley and and all the 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 folks at Lobster they can do the big big budget things for the big famous people, but there are plenty of uh, stars who everyone went to see uh, whether they, while they were waiting for Charlie Chaplin to make his next film, uh, and whose films are 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 good and worth seeing and um, because so many people have can really get into silent film or even classic film because so much is available now uh filling pointing out that there is a landscape to fill out and then also filling it out is really what we do um wow that 
That's amazing. Thank you. There's, I have about a hundred questions that just come off yeah. of that intro. Oh yeah. Um, uh, but one of the things that jumps out to me, you know, uh, just as a sign of good fortune, Arrow Video uh, uh, started off from Kickstarter, uh-huh. uh, or at least their, their transition to Blu-ray. I forget. Uh, anyways, but that's that, there's a sign of that's what your future looks like. So congratulations ahead of time on that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, it, it is. Yeah. We'll 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 see. But this is that this is the great thing about the era we're in now is that. Uh, things like Kickstarter and and the internet and the different social media platforms uh, allow you to connect directly with people who want to see this stuff. And it you know it's easy to get press if you have a Buster Keaton thing because everybody loves Buster Keaton. You can't you can't miss you know no matter how many times somebody does another new restoration of the General, there will be a market for it. Um, but Edward Everett Horton, who who knew he made eight comedy shorts. Uh, but if people now, I mean, I'm at a point now where people know who I am and know what I do and know that the quality of what we put out is, is the quality of what we put out. And so when I did the Kickstarter for Beverly O'Graustark last month, it funded in two hours. And the, the next project will probably, I mean, I, I, uh, the next one will probably do the same thing. I, I'll, I'll, I'll be doing a Kickstarter in March. Um, wow. Um, and and uh, before we get too much into that, that's very exciting news. Um, we weren't sure if he's going to be able to, to make it or not, but we have surprise good news uh, that Eric uh, from, from Reddit is Captain Gig, is, uh, Captain Gib, excuse me, was able to make it. So Eric, thank you so much for joining in the discussion. Oh, yeah, yeah. Good to see you. And I, I like to just, we're all on Zoom looking at each other. And for those of you listening, if you're not listening, you won't know what I'm saying. But uh but Eric has a very nice display of, of DVDs that I've scored or have released uh, behind him. So thank you so much for putting that together. That's yeah, great. of course. Yeah. Um, my apologies for running late. I thought it was at 7, not 5.30. Oh. So my apologies for that. That's quite all right. I'm glad you're here. We're, ha- we're happy, happy to, to be here. Um, yeah. That's awesome. I uh, Yeah, we uh, – so, so, Ben, that, that intro was uh, awesome. Thank you so much. I, sure. Sure. Um, There's a lot in that that I think is super interesting to unpack. Uh, One of the things that you just kind of casually laid out was all these amazing connections that you have. And so was that something that you built up over the years through the work you're doing and creating, you know, custom music for a lot of these old silent films? Um, Some of it is, uh, you know, uh, the films that I'm I'm releasing are either things I've I've gotten uh, from private collectors or the library of congress um i've been accompanying silent films at the library of congress since they opened the packard campus down in culpepper and uh so the connections uh and and the people i've built relationships with uh there have have made it made it uh, uh a big a big part of what i do uh in fact the the co-branding arrangement that I have with the Library of Congress came out of my because I I would go down to play for something, but I'll go down for two or three days and I'll hang out, and uh, Rob Stone and I will will pull stuff from the vaults, we'll watch it or or whatever, and you know I kept telling Rob was fascinated by this 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 business model I'd come up with 
because uh, Rob, Rob has run other businesses in his in previous lives before his uh, work uh, first at UCLA and, and now at the Library of Congress. And he kept saying, well, how many units do you have to sell before you break even? And I said, zero. You know, th- this is this is the big bugaboo that you have to work around, and uh, which a lot of people don't under don't know or understand, um, uh, is that with pressed product, there's a minimum n- number, and I mm-hmm. will never sell a thousand of any of this stuff. Maybe 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 the Horton project, I might I may be, get close to it, but but. Uh, you know, the family secret with baby Peggy is a couple hundred, and that's been out for, you know, eight or nine years. And so we would, he, Rob and I kept talking about this. And so I became more aware of and familiar with uh, the, the, the process uh, with the Library of Congress through which you can access uh, by, by purchasing uh, uh, files uh, of, of things. Um, uh, they are a government run archive. And so they can do that. Um, and other archives are do not have that luxury of being funded by the, you know, the government. And so as much as fans complain, well, why don't they put this out? And why doesn't such and such an archive do this? It's like, yeah, do you know how much money it costs for them to do anything? Uh, that's why it's, it's you know, it, that is the, the tricky thing. And I completely understand it. Um, so through getting to know people, um, from my trips down to the Library of Congress, uh, uh, I've, I've, that's that's helped me uh, just just familiar with the uh, the collection. But but there are other archives I've worked I've worked with um, through doing you know going to mostly Loss and other festivals like that. I w- I will tell you one other thing that I forgot to mention as far as why I, I w- was interested in, in producing and releasing Blu-rays is that. Um, yeah. Uh, is is and DVDs is that it it would help uh, me get uh, my my work as a film accompanist out there more. I I do get asked occasionally by uh, uh, the good folks at Kino Lorber to score things, uh, but not all that much. Um, and so this was another calling card kind of thing. I I've done scoring a lot of scoring for a real classic DVD, a small uh, DVDR label. But I thought that this might be another way of getting my my work as a musician out there. Yeah, and I know I know we want to talk a lot about um, Kickstarter kind of model and all of that. But since you mentioned being an accompanist, I think it's fair to um, delve into that a little bit. Um, so uh, I did want to ask how um, how you got started with accompanying films and was that born of a love of movies first or a love of music first, or was they, were they both parallel or how did that start? There, there was, it was parallel. You know, I, I started playing piano for silent films when I was a film production major at NYU. And this is in the early eighties, just before VHS and laser discs. So everything that was being shown was being shown in 16 millimeter double perf prints with no sound. And I had grown up being a huge, huge silent film fan. I, uh, I was from the generation of the Blackhawk film catalogs and watching the silent years on public television. And I had a unique uh, situation in that uh, from the time I was 12 years old, uh, I used to go over to Walter Kerr's house 
wow. and watch silent film. This is the guy who literally bo- wrote the book on silent comedy film. Um, I got a copy of his book when I was 12 as a bar mitzvah present. Uh, and, and my folks remember hearing somewhere that Walter Kerr and his wife, Jean, of Please Don't Eat the Daisies and many other wonderful things, uh, lived in our town and that Walter Kerr had a huge film collection. And I wrote him a letter. And a few days later, he called back. You know, I have a letter here from uh, Bert Modell, uh, Ben Modell. Uh, so, you know, and, <laughs> and, and, and he was happy to have me over. So I, I arrived at film school having seen all of Buster Keaton's films, all of Cha- Chaplin's, uh, Harry Langdon, Harold Lloyd, Raymond. I, I seen Raymond Griffith films. And uh, so, and, and then when I volunteered to start playing for the film uh, classes, uh, I, wa- I was playing for Bill- William K. Everson's classes. Um, and then also got a chance to play for a course taught at Bridgeport University by Charles Silver at MoMA, who had gotten wind of my playing for for things at, at, at NYU through whatever grapevine there was. And I met a guy named Lee Irwin, because what I did is I went around New York and I met everybody who was accompanying films, because I figured, I don't know what I'm doing. Let me ask the people who do this. And I had a few really nice conversations with Bill Perry, who I'm still in touch with. He's in his early 90s, and he's still writing music and arranging music. Um, and uh, I I think I spoke by phone with Donald Sosin. I met Stuart Odeman, uh, and I think maybe Steve Stern. And I met Lee Irwin at the Carnegie Hall Cinema. And he became a friend and a mentor to me. And... Um, so I, I got, you know, I got started because I felt like I wanted to help these films not die in front of film students every week. The part I don't understand is I was very uncomfortable in front of other people. And I had never given a concert. And I still, I, I still don't remember how I got past that. Uh, I remember the part of wanting to, maybe secretly always play the piano for silent films, but I wanted to help these films work better. I I do not know what, what maybe I thought, well, the lights are off and no one's looking at me and it doesn't matter. Uh, but that it, it, there was this, there was this parallel interest in filmmaking in music. And, and, and I think I secretly always wanted to, to give this a shot. Um, and, what was great about uh, the time at NYU is I, Bill Everson showed more film than other teachers did. So I was playing for two features a week, plus uh, something in Bob Sklar's class. And it was like silent film accompaniment boot camp. I mean, I just got to play for so much film. Uh, and, you know, I, I would talk to Lee and try something in class and go back and talk to him and we, you know, so I had these, this, I mean, this is how I got started. And then, um, I, it didn't really, I did continue to play for films, but I didn't really, uh, lean into it as a profession for, for a bunch of years afterwards. Cause I was trying to do, um, filmmaking and, and an improv and sketch and stand up. I want to point out is Bill Perry. Is that his name? Yeah. William Perry. Yeah. You have an interview with him, right? On your own podcast. Um, I don't, I want to, I have a, a, on my podcast and thanks for mentioning my podcast. Um, I have an interview with Harry Weiss. 
Harry Weiss. That's now, who I'm thinking yeah, of. Yeah, and Harry Weiss was the first film accompanist at the Cinema Arts Center out on Long Island. And he was in his 90s, and when I started playing at that theater and found that he was still around, and he was sharp as a tack, uh, I, I interviewed him by phone. But I'm trying uh, to work out something to interview Bill Perry. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. I wanted to point people to that interview um, yeah. because it's very informative about, about the even earlier history of, of a silent film accompaniment. Yeah, yeah. Harry played his first film in, his, in the late 30s. He was, he, he was a college student at, 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 at I think, CCNY. He played for Intolerance, and they booked a print from MoMA, and they gave him a cue sheet score, and he was an improviser. He, threw it, he put it aside and came up with his own score. And this, this must have been the early years of the uh, MoMA's film library. Because it yeah. started in 1935, I think. Right. Yeah. Well, I have to think all that, you know, you know, playing for Everson and, and Robert Sklar, and that had to be a great uh, kind of boot camp to, to um, kind of get started. Because knowing all of, the, all of the films that they were playing, because the, uh, the Everson collection is housed here at the George Eastman Museum. Right, and right. And so probably some of these prints are, are films that you played along with. Oh yeah, yeah, and and a lot of the stuff from the, uh, the Everson collection is stuff where that was the only print. Um, I remember. I mean, there other material has since turned up, but I remember going to preview uh, his print of Our Parents People, and there's a note taped taped to the can from Bill. Dear Ben, this is the only known print. Please be very careful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I wanted to talk a little bit about. Um about the art of playing for silent films, sure. because one of the really interesting things, I think every time I'm, I'm at a screening or, or even, you know, watching a Blu-ray of a silent film is that it's such a, um, it's such an odd kind of confluence of live performance and something that is static that doesn't change. You know, you can watch the film now, you can watch the film in 50 years and it's gonna be the same, but every performance is, can be different. Yeah. And the audience, if you're in a live, you know, performance, the audience is going to be different every time. So I wanted to ask kind of how, how you view um, the role of the accompanist in that, in that interaction. Well, you're working as a cultural bridge uh, uh, in, 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 a, in a number of different ways. Uh, one way is that uh, people's expectations of a film score today uh are one thing and what film scoring was in the 1920s is something else and there are people and there are ensembles who play the cue sheet as it was published so that today you are hearing what people heard in cinemas in 1921 however that scoring technique does not work uh really anymore and we're so used to what film music became in the mid to, mid thirties after underscore uh, came came back into general use uh, after dis kind of disappearing in the early thirties. So so uh, you know I'm I'm still playing fake classical music, which is what most of the cue cues are are like. Uh, but I'm still uh, uh, I'm avoiding recognizable music i'm trying not to repeat a cue too many times uh, i'm trying to use more subtle underscore and use of light motif um, which is what we're we're more accustomed to uh today you're you're all you know you and i'm very aware of the people in the audience uh, as any of the us who've accompanied films 
will tell you that it's a factor. So there's this Venn diagram. If you overlap, you know, where the audience interacting with the screen, the audience interacting with me, me interacting with the screen, and me interacting and being aware of the audience, where all that stuff overlaps, I think that's really where the the happening of of what the silent film experience is uh, is really all about. So so it's definitely and like you said, uh, uh, every audience is different. Uh, a two p.m show for ninth graders is going to be different from a Friday night show of Sons of the Desert members, which is going to be different from doing a show on a Saturday afternoon for kids and families, which is going to be different from a Tuesday night cineast, uh, you know, cinephile kind of an audience. So, and as anybody who does live performance will tell you, yeah, it's, it's, it's always a factor because you're, you're part of the surfing you know, writing the waves that you're doing in addition to scoring the film is you're out of this corner of your brain. You're very much aware of the audience and how then there's a, there's a moment, usually a few minutes in where you can tell the audience is clicked in. Hmm. They, they're, they're, their radar has been retuned and they're in the world. You know, you've gotten them up into the world of the film. You mentioned um, playing for kids and that's it's one of the things that I really is kind of remarkable um, about you. There's a phrase that I've I've heard, I think, on one of your podcasts where you talk about audience preservation. Yes, that's and, one of my catchphrases. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's just it's something I really take to heart because, you know, a lot of these films, if we don't introduce them to young people, then I think the people that are interested in them is going to slowly go down. So I just want if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah kids love this stuff and 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 to the same degree that they love it the adults think that they're not going to oh it's black and white there's no sound they have to read it's old they won't understand this blah, blah, blah. and you know the thing to we all have to remember is that kids play with uh objects that represent other things all the time you know um uh the, you know it's like saying that's not a real car and that's not a real person. So it's an 18-inch high plastic representation of a human. And, you know, you know, you put you know, eight kids out in the yard and the, this is base and this is, if you touch this rock, this happens. So they're in touch with their imagination way more. So you just put them in a room and shut off the lights <laughs> and put on, put on a film. And it's, it's, uh, it's almost a visceral reaction uh, my go-to short for little kids is Oranges and Lemons with Stan Laurel. It's a one-reeler. It's got a lot of great slapstick, a lot of people falling down. And yes, there are titles. And I, all you have to do is tell kids, in the first half, Stan is trying to pick oranges off of a tree. In the second half, he's trying to pack them in boxes. And then don't worry about what the words on the screen are saying. And the first laugh that they that you hear... It's you can almost hear the surprise and the newness of it because it's a kind of humor they've never experienced, um, and it's just thrilling. And and uh, I there's a there's a, a a school here in Manhattan. I I play every year for their fourth or fifth graders, and we even during COVID I streamed into the into the school. But the last time we did it, something in person. During the Q and A, I said yes. There's a hand she goes up, and this young woman who must have been nine or ten says, "Can we see it again?" 
<laughs> you know, they, you know, I show them one week, which is my uh, my other go to short. Um, uh, so it's it's really important to put these films in front of kids, uh, or or any kind of an audience, as long as it's a you know the thing about it, it, to to do it in a school setting where they have to be there, and then once you get. Once it's like anything with silent film, just get somebody into the theater that once, and then they'll get it. And and even one one of my students in my course that I teach at Wesleyan, um, uh, she uh, joined the class in the third week uh, because that's when drop ad ends, and she just just got in under the wire, and she never had seen silent film uh, before. And <laughs> week three is <laughs> Orphans of the Storm. And, you know, we were talking about it the following week because, you know, it's a long film. We ran out of time to, for conversation. But she said she she was really so pleased and so pleasantly surprised at how much she really enjoyed the film. She had no idea how it was going to go. And I said, yeah, that's what I always hear. This was yeah. way more fun than I thought it was going to be. So I, that's what I call audience preservation, especially especially with, with school groups. And there's so, I have and to just quickly. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, I don't mean to cut you off. I just have to say is that I have a someone who's a, a boy who's about to turn five. And oh his, my the God. Christmas, uh, just, yeah, this past Christmas was the first time that he didn't play with the box. He actually played with the toy. So, I mean, just to your point on the imagination of a child, I, I haven't really made that connection before, but I see it all the time. Yeah. Oh, no. As soon as, you know, the film, the film uh, fades in and they're, they're just in it. You know, adults... You can, I mean, I can feel the audience slowly. Their radar gets retuned, and then they're they're into it. There are some films that are good where there's a, a physical gag at which you can't help laughing. So, and that's always a good uh, release, especially for a show for teenagers who are too cool. You know, you do a show for teenagers, and the boys are in the back of the room, and the the. The girls are in the front of the room, and no, they're too cool to laugh. And with one week, it's the moment when Buster is straddling the two cars, running boards, mm -hmm. and the motorcycle hits him because nobody's expecting that. And there is this huge splatter of a laugh that happens. And from that point on, it gives them permission to laugh at the rest of the picture. Um, with the immigrant, as soon as Henry Bergman, in a dress, you know, starts sliding back and forth, on on the the, the 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 mess hall floor or whatever uh that always gets a huge laugh and from that point on uh they, they feel you know okay uh, it's okay to laugh at this and but it's really it's really important to to show this these these films to to younger people so that they know it's okay and they once they get a little older and uh they they'll go yeah you know, if, if you, you, you mentioned something, even if it's like, oh, it's Metropolis, it's really cool. And then, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I think you're right about the, the impression that people have of silent film is often like the, the thing that needs to be gotten past. Um, I, I always think of the beginning of that Kevin Brownlow series, Hollywood, where they kind of give, you know, the impression that for a long time, the way people saw silent film was at the wrong speed, a very doopy print. Um, just kind of stock music plastered over it. Um, and then, you know, of course they show you, I think it's a clip from the fire brigade. Yeah. It's the fire brigade. Yeah. Right. And it's just, you know, I, I think introduction is such a fundamental thing to introduce people to, you know, an, a, a 
viewing a silent film in the correct environment um, can kind of get people hooked right away. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. That's, that's very, that's very important is, is yeah. Introducing people and, and this, it's, it's the stereotype of what silent film is as well as just the word silent just puts people off. My joke is like, it's, it's like saying, Hey, we're all going to go out to a bar, but it's in a library, you know, (laughs) but, but the, but the thing is that even, People who are quote quote unquote making new silent films are still perpetuating the stereotype uh, with you know the awful you know flowery border that I think we all first saw in the Raymond Rohauer reissues of Keaton films or even before that and the flowery uh, uh, lettering um, there's a, f- a free font called Speedball that I've never seen in a silent film and the 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 it, it, it's it's so crazy that the stereotypes that were spoofs of in the 1930s and 40s making fun of silent movies have held through the 40s and 50s and now people who are making silent movies with their iPhones are adding dust and scratches and that awful there's there's a border that I see all the time it's that if you type in silent movie title background on Google this thing will come up and. <laughs> There's no way to erase it from the internet, but but there's so many stereotypes of of what it really is, and then you show them sunrise, and they're like, "Oh wait a second, oh that's what this. Oh wait a minute, oh, you know, or 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 pretty much anything." It's funny you call it sunrise. That was my intro to silent films. Yeah, uh, not not having grown up with it, that was the first one I saw. That the first five minutes, I was like kind of skeptical, and then as it got going, I actually asked my friend who was sh- who showed it to me. I said, "Did they come in and like add these title cards in later? They feel different, you know? Like it, uh, yeah. everything you're saying resonates very well." Yeah, yeah. Sunrise is, a, is, is, is aside from showing somebody a comedy, uh, that's the other that's the other thing that a lot of people have seen for the first time and thought, "Oh, wait a second. Yeah. Um, Eric, you had, uh, I don't know if this is the right time for it, but you had actually found some old uh, music, right? Or some old... uh... Yeah, so um, a few months back, I went to a rare bookshop, and I found this book. It was printed in 1924. And it's all sheet music with the, um, you know, telling you the different genres, like what pages to flip to, things like that. That's Motion um, Picture Moods by, put together by Erno Rappé, who's one of the top orchestral conductors in New York City. Um, yeah. You know, you know, Eric is holding it up so I can see it on Zoom, but you're you're listening to this, so just... <laughs> yes. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The, 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 the famous Motion Picture Moods book. Yeah. yeah. So how often was that used? Like, because that came out in 1924. So yeah. how often was that really used? I'm not, I'm not sure about that particular book. Uh, that's the only book of its kind that was published during the silent film era, um, and uh, mostly, you know, pretty much every movie theater had a huge, huge library of several hundred of those cues. And even the motion picture moods book, because Rappé uh, had an agenda to educate the the, the, the patrons of his theater. In in the canon of music of uh, classical music, there's a lot more classical music in the that book than there are mood cues. Uh, but that was just his agenda. But you know, pretty pretty much what people did is they they worked 
uh, from the, the huge mood cue library that they had. And a lot of those survive. And interestingly, they survive as if somebody went into a, an orchestra pit in a movie theater, scooped up the entire library and stuck it in steamer trunks, and now it's in a special collection in Texas or Colorado or New York or I'm, I'm sure Eastman Museum has a, a collection or either it's either the Eastman Museum or or, or um, the Eastman School of Music. I know Philip Carley has told me a, a lot a lot about that. But basically you're the way you might put together a mixtape, you are compiling a score uh, from all of these mood cues and and so but but copies of the the, the rape book do turn up from time to time and that was like I went to the, you know when I was playing at NYU the first thing I did is try to find something and I went to the Bobst library and they had a copy of that and I kind of used a little you know uh, it's 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 maybe two inches thick and it's all the different moods and then there's in the margins on the left and right hand side are a list of all the moods or things like cars and airplanes and a page number you would just flip to it but uh sometimes a, a pianist would have mo the moods in stacks on top of a piano so and they would play for something they pull a, a waltz and then they needed a chase they'd grab a chase f and just play that way but um i don't know really how how often that book was used but definitely there were a lot of people who, who had it because every once in a while somebody will email me like, hey i just found this at a bookshop and do you have it and uh, yeah, I, I have a, a copy of. It. I actually about fifteen years ago, um, uh, the, co uh, the 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 company that now owns G. Shermer's, uh, which published uh, the Rape book, hired me to do a, 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 a another version of it. So there's a book called Music for the Silent Films um, that has fifty mood cues that I I picked. Um, after playing through several hundred of them. And there's an essay in it about the history of, of uh, film music and stuff like that. But if you really want to get into that stuff, it's all online at Silent Film, the, the Silent Film Sound and Music Archive or sifsma.org. Uh, there, there's, there's, there's just hundreds and hundreds of these, of these mood cues available. Uh, so that, that's just easier than, than, than buying a book and prying it open. Yeah, good find though. Yeah. I know you said some, so there are some um, accompanists who stick very close to um, the cue sheets. Yeah. And I think Mont Alto Orchestra comes to mind as being very authentic um, to the music that would have been played at the time. Yeah. Um, but certainly well, it's a, oh yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, no but the, the Mont Alto uh, Orchestra, they use the mood cues, but Rodney Sauer does not follow the cue sheets. Because, uh, the, the, like I said, they don't really hold up. I asked him once, do you use the cue sheets? Oh, no. So he'll compile his own score, much as anybody else did in the 1920s. Right, right. The wrong terminology there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. sometimes. Okay. Yeah, the cue, the cue sheets, I know, are, are have been used, have been very useful in um, restorations and reconstructions. Because sometimes if intertitles are missing, those lines are on the cue sheets, um, which is the order and not the actual music. Yeah. Um, if I'm getting that right. Yeah, it's like um, a roadmap. Right, right. Um, but certainly, it, I guess there's a spectrum of um, of how close people, whether their theory of, of accompaniment is close to what people would have heard at the time to some very kind of experimental um, 
uh, scores. Yeah. And sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't. Um, something really, I mean, an interesting example, I think that really does work was uh, the BFI Blu-ray release of um, Underground, the Anthony Asquith film, had a very interesting score. Um, I'm forgetting the guy's name. It's Chris something. Um, that was all these kind of, you know, the film takes place in the London underground and all these kind of industrial settings. And so um, the artist had had kind of created all these um, noisescapes of, you know, the sounds that you hear when you're in the subway mm-hmm. and when you're out by a factory. And it was not music, but it was a really, it was really, I think there's a Neil, Bra- a wonderful Neil Brand score on that film as well. Mm-hmm. And it was very interesting to kind of hear the difference in how um, you know, and going back to how how the music can affect your viewing of the film. Um, so I was just wondering how you how you felt about the kind of breadth of different kind of scores people do. Well, I, I'm on the side of silent film, and if it gets people interested, uh, then then that's it's, you know, like I said, we just we just got to get people in the door for the first time so that they'll get it. And if it's one of these bang on the can kind of scores. Uh, but that's your first exposure and now you're hooked, then that's great, you know. Um, but and, and and at the same time, there are people who are piano accompanists who have done lousy jobs and ruined films. Uh, and I've seen there's a, a there's a festival in northern Norway that I used to play at every year uh, called Silent Film Days or Stum Film Dog. And they used to have a, a, a punk band from Finland called Cleaning Women who would come and play for things and they they, it was great but they really scored the film so as way out as their music was the mood shifted when the film needed the 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 music to shift and they would stop and start with it i've seen bands just wail and without any regard for what's happening on screen so i think that as long as the film is being scored um uh but but in 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 a in a way that helps an audience connect with the flow of what's happening, it can work. Um, and, and in the same way, a traditional classical score can just, can just completely not work. So it's, I think a lot of it has to do with how, uh, how carefully the scoring is, is, is done. I mean, I've seen, I've seen a bunch of different kinds of things like that and, uh, I've seen it work and I've seen it not work. Right. It seems to be one of those things where you want you want the score to feel um, like it's in the same room. It's interacting with the film, right? And not the just mo- you know, yeah, yeah. Because the 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 more an audience has to work to line it up with what they're watching, then the harder it is for them to get into the the world of the film. And that's the, that's the main thing is to get you into the world of the film and, and keep you up there. And for me, I what I try to do is to honor the. I try to, as much as I can, honor the work that went into the film and try to understand the director's viewpoint as if I can or understand the culture um, if there's a viewpoint that's be- that needs to be supported. But um, uh, I'm, I'm not, you know, there are people who just hate anything that doesn't sound like Gaylord Carter. And uh, there's and there are people who, who will just say, oh, I don't like that boring classical music. And But, you know... Uh, there are a variety of things, and if it works, great. And if it, especially if it gets you into the theater for the first time, that's that's my main thing. It's like if it, if it got you into the theater, uh, and you want to see more, great. You know, it's it's usually not the 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 weird score that that makes people 
go, oh, I saw, you know, <laughs> I, I saw a man with a movie camera, but these people are playing this noisy score. I'm never seeing a silent film again. And I mean, that never happens. Right. You know, at least it's live. You know, and it gets, we just have to get people in the, into the room to experience it. The way you describe it, so just kind of coming as the, the, the dumb one in, in the room here, as far as experience, the way you're describing it, I'm, I'm loving this, though. It's almost as if you're, I'm kind of hearing you say uh, the music that accompanies the movie is sort of like the heart of the movie, right? And that's how people connect to it. Well, it, the, the, uh, to, to some degree, I mean, it, it helps, or well, the heart, I think. Um, I think I, uh, I, I think I think I think maybe the 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 closing line of Metropolis of of the meeting being the mediator between the the hands and the heart because it's all in the it's all up on the screen. So what what the music does is and and you know it's up on the screen and then the rest that's supplied in our right brains is something that we bring from our own human experience up into that world. And what the music is there to do is to help enhance that. Uh, mm-hmm. And help you connect uh, with anything that you don't, you 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 may need help connecting with uh, emotionally or just focus in terms of where you're supposed to look in the frame and that sort of thing. So we're right. in, we're in the service of the film and the audience. Yeah, and I was thinking of a quote recently. You had said something about that it's it's more of a role of supporting the film, but not mirroring the film. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, mirroring, you know, just, you know, smacking the keys when somebody falls down or playing a song title pun or that you know, something where you're the audience is aware of the of the accompanist because you're it's a weird it's a weird mindset for for anyone who is a composer and performer that the whole idea is for n- people to not be aware of what you're doing, you know, um Lee Irwin always said the best thing you can hear from somebody after a show is I forgot you were playing. And I, I find that I, I now I do shows and people will come up up to me after the show and we just talk about the film. And I think, I don't think it's because they hated my music so much they don't want to mention it, but I think that there's, they were, if they've had such a good time with the film that they come up to me and we just start talking about this scene or that scene, I feel like I've done, uh, you know, I've, I've done my job. Well, I don't want to spend too much time um, talking about just the accompaniment aspect of things because you're involved Good. in so much. <laughs> yeah. um, and actually, that is that is one of the kind of remarkable things uh, about you is that you are, you know, I feel like there is a there is a bit of a debate constantly raging about, you know, the best, the way to see a film and the only way to see a film. The thing that's really interesting about you is that you're fundamentally um, involved with theatrical performance, you accompany live films, uh, and then you have this whole other side where you are, you know, putting out silent films on home media for people to watch in their homes. And with the uh, silent comedy uh, watch party, you're also involved with live, you know, streaming in a way of, yeah. of people watching that live. So yeah, you've got your hands in a lot of a lot of uh, buckets. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I, I I wear a lot of hats. There's a lot of hyphens uh, flying around. And yeah, with with the live streaming, I I had always had the idea but before covid figured oh i don't want to do anything that's going to keep people from going to a theater uh what i've discovered is there is a whole audience of people which of course makes sense for whom there is no art house to go to right you know we did a we did a live stream uh i do one every month for the cinema arts center 
and uh, I think it was Beauty's Worth with uh, Marion Davies. And uh, I leave the chat off. I don't like the chat during the film because it's just people saying, that was awesome. Oh, yeah, yeah, hey, yeah, how are you? Uh, but I turn it on at the end when we do the broadcast, the, the streams uh, with Cinema Arts Center so we can have a Q&A. And it's been, it's been great. And we always tell people, uh, if you're going to post a comment, tell us where you're watching from. And there was a woman who wrote... Uh, I'm watching in Iowa and thanked us for doing this because she says, I have no way of seeing silent film with live accompaniment. And and so um, as the pandemic, I hope uh, tapers off and we can start going back to movie theaters. Uh, my intention is not to stop. Uh, we may uh, drop the, the frequency of the silent comedy watch party down to once a month. Um, but even the Cinema Arts Center, we are going to do our first in-person show in April or May. And uh, Dylan Skolnick, who's the, the co-director of the cinema, and I've been doing a show there since 2006. But he said even when we go back to in-person, he wants to continue doing the live streams. Because, you know, we have people who say, I'm watching from Hungary. And uh, I'm in I'm in Canada, the, we the western end of Canada. And, and people from, from Buenos Aires are watching. So, um. You know, I, I I don't think it's keeping people from going to cinemas, and we've certainly uh, introduced a lot of people uh, to to things. So yeah, I I wear a lot of hats, and there's on top on top of all this, I'm also the archivist for the Ernie Kovacs and Edie Adams collection. So it reminds um, me of yeah. Oh no no no! I don't mean to please. No go ahead. Go no go ahead. Well, it reminds me of uh, this may sound like a weird example, but the. Uh, um, when the Dave Matthews band got started, the industry was completely flabbergasted that they let people live record their shows because they were just like, well, what do you, they actually would let people plug into their soundboard. And at that time, it just wasn't done in the industry. They're like, well, you're ruining your, your, uh, your, your earning potential, you know? And they're like, nah, I don't see it that way. And obviously it worked out well for them. But I think it's just the idea of like, if, if you, if the goal is to get people to watch the content or, or listen to the content or see it, then be more open to exploring these different avenues to, to get people that wouldn't otherwise see it. Oh yeah, I mean it worked pretty well for the Grateful Dead. I mean they always they had a they always yes, had exactly. a section here, tape our concert, and you stand over here and tape our concert. And you know this is the thing that's changed in the last maybe ten years, and that I've become very aware of. And part of why I got into doing uh, the home video releases is uh, the. I was one of the things I was researching at the time, and this is, I think, what got me into uh, doing more, with, trying to do more with social media and learning about Kickstarter. Is I was looking at what I saw a bunch of videos and webinars uh, for people in the music industry for whom the bottom fell out 25 years ago, you know, with with iTunes and Napster and now Spotify. You know, your music's everywhere and you get two cents a year. Um, and what's happened is that it's it's become about access, and um, not, not not controlling. You can't. I mean, the the ability to control your music by being a gatekeeper is gone, and it, that cat is out of the bag, and it's not coming back. Sure. And and right. so I was looking into how I could apply that to what I do, and um and and, and it it's this. It's, this is where everybody is right now, especially the film archives, because 
when it comes to silent film, you know, in two years, everything is going to be in the public domain. So how do you monetize the collection? How do you get any kind of return on your investment? And it's an investment where, you know, uh, a particular film, an archive may have spent decades, you know, conserving it and winding through it and checking it and uh, having to fundraise to get a preservation negative made because it's starting to go, but it doesn't have anybody famous in it, but it's really important. And, you know, it's not like the Library of Congress where they can, oh, well, this smells a little, let's send it out to the lab. You know, every film archive is in this weird position, not weird, it's, it's, it's the same, we're all in the same position. So what do you do with the film? And, uh, and even, even the whole physical media game may, may be changing. I, I can't tell because as much as streaming is, is taking over or it's becoming more and more uh, prevalent and there are people who do not have players, there are still, like you guys, people who do have uh, DVD and Blu-ray players and you have an HDMI, HDMI cables. Oh, heaven forbid. I gotta, you, don't, you didn't cut the cable? What's wrong with you? Um, but but I, I also think that there's something to it in that as human beings, there is a need for ceremony that we have. And there's something in, in the same thing with vinyl. It's not just that the sound is warmer, but there's something about walking over to the turntable, lifting the lid, taking the disc out yes. of the sleeve. Every record has its own smell, especially if you have something that's in a gatefold, you open that gatefold... Oh, this record, and you put it on. Then you put the dust thing on, and then you place the needle on, and you sit down. And um, it's it's the same thing, like with 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 uh, we which we've all encountered over the during the pandemic is that with Zoom, it's it's like uh, Bewitched or I Dream of Genie. You're suddenly there, and then okay, we'll see you later. Bloop. And there's no transition. There's no fade. Sure. You're not walking through the lobby chatting with people. Oh, I'll see you later. You want to get some coffee? It's just on and off. And I think that the act of taking something off of your shelf and taking the disc out and you open the, the case and there's this nice disc face uh, and you put it into the player and you push the button, you sit down and you watch the FBI logo and here comes the menu. And even if it's a single menu... Uh, there's that you know there's that whole ceremony of it and and, and I think that that's why there I think that's why people are still interested in physical media and the people who aren't that's fine um but we're in this this we're in this time where access is very important especially like we're talking about audience preservation and trying to it, it, it's 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 a double-edged sword because on the one hand you do want money to change hands and you do want to be compensated um, but but, but it, if the films aren't available then what do you do it's it's, it's a very strange uh, paradox that that uh, uh, that I'm sure you know Kirk you work at the Eastman Museum I'm sure you know the the number of complaints. Well, why don't you let us see this? And why not, can't I click on this and see that? You, you know, just because you have a an archive has a print, I should be able to click on something and see it. Well, it's not that easy. <laughs> it's not that simple. I was actually good. I was going to bring that up. I, I naively asked uh, Kirk if the whole collection was digitized, and I think he was a little bit 
struck by the question when I asked him because <laughs> you know he's like well no I mean he was very nice about it but yeah. it's very expensive yeah to and do that. and, and the Eastman Museum has this yeah and you have a you guys you know the, the Eastman Museum has a, has scanning equipment and but the, the the number of reels of film and the number of people there are to take care of them and deal with it people fans have no idea uh, that, that there's that, it's just impossible to, to get everything done. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's what's, I mean, yeah. I mean, you know, archives are limited like anything else. They have limited people and, you know, always money is a huge issue for everything. Yeah. Which is why this Kickstarter model is really so in a way perfectly fit for a silent film. And it's, I, I think it's kind of revolutionary and continues to be, you know, you know, as more and more stuff comes out that way. Um, as more and more stuff enters the public domain. And I'm sure you, you know, when you talk to Rob Stone at, at the NAVCC about, you know, finding something that doesn't have donor restrictions and is the public domain and is a good fit. Um, but, you know, besides those, in, in the grand scheme of things, they're pretty small hoops to jump through. And if you can get through those hoops, um, you know, a lot of stuff that would never be commercially viable for some of the, you know, the bigger labels, um, getting that out to people, it's kind of, it's a, it's a great era for that. Yeah, and and that's what's great about manufacture on demand is that you, you each product is made on demand, literally, and you're not pressing fifteen hundred and hoping to make your money back. Uh, I live in an, an apartment in New York City. I don't have room for you know that. And I you know I I did I pre- did press product on when I did was in Flower the the Marion Davies picture, and after five years I was able to get rid of the last of the product. And then only by having a f- of like a fire sale on Amazon by dropping the price of five bucks, uh, just to blow uh, a, a a couple hundred copies out the door, just to be done with it. And that's a that's a, f- a, a film with a semi name. Um, uh, so yeah, the, the 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 combination of Kickstarter crowdfunding through fans, um, Kickstarter gets the credit, but it's really this is why I, I always make sure uh, on my projects that I, I, I don't say this was funded through Kickstarter. I say this was funded by five hundred and seventy-five classic film th- fans through Kickstarter because it's it's really the catchphrase I came up with for I think my third or fourth Kickstarter video is why not be part of the somebody and why doesn't somebody put that out on DVD? Um, because and what's happened over the last ten years is that everybody gets it now. Um, whether it's me or Ed LaRusso or Grapevine or anybody, um, uh, everybody understands now that uh, this is a way for something that doesn't have Charlie Chaplin in it to get out there uh, to to fans. Is the the you know you know the the crowdfunding and and manufacture on demand. I mean, some people prefer press product, and if that's your thing, that's that's fine. But it's just economically doesn't really. Uh, work, but it, it, so we are in this in this time when money can be raised mo- from fans for things to happen, um, and uh, so it, it's 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 been great to do this. To just to demystify that a little bit for people, could you explain just from from the conversations about what kind of film could be a possible project to you know getting that out there to people? How does that all work? Okay. <laughs> um, Sometimes it's it's just a matter of something that that will strike my my interest. 
from going through a um, a list of things that are in the public domain or about to enter the public domain and making sure there are no donor restrictions. So that's hurdle number one. Uh, do I like it? Do I think it's funny? Do Steve and I think this is worthwhile? And if it's something you haven't heard of, then you find a way to make it look like it's something you should have heard of. And so some of that is, a lot of that is uh, from uh, just basic marketing and also the, 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 the graphic design. You know, um, Marlene Weissman does an amazing job on all of our covers and um, they, they're, I think they're the same caliber in terms of artistry as what you might see on a Criterion or a Kino or Flickr Alley, um, you know, uh, and, and this sort of, uh, uh, white label, uh, style, uh, uh, of design looks that way. I mean, you, you know, uh, without reading the text, if you're looking at something that Alpha put out, you know you know what the production design is. So a lot of it is is is, is comes from that. And Marlene's got an amazing knack for for making something look like uh, it's something you've already heard of a lot, even though you've never heard of Alice Howell. Um, so that, that that's that's part of it. And then um, I think I, I have found that building up uh, a, a, some kind of a presence on Twitter. Uh, more than the other social media because Twitter you can share. It's just you click and, you, and you, the retweet is, is just there. I mean, um, uh, Instagram, it's really complicated. You know, my, my wife is on Instagram and she'll see something. She keeps saying, how do I share this? I say, ah, I don't know. It's not easy. And Facebook, it's it's not that's not what Facebook is about. But um, I think that's, I first noticed that happening when I did the Kickstarter for When Night It Was in Flower. It's a Marion Davies picture. So all the TCM classic film fans were retweeting and, and getting the word out there. So um, that that that's that part of it. It, it. I mean, so you have to get the money. <laughs> uh, so you raise the money and then you you pay for the files and then uh, you hire the compass, which is very easy. I know somebody. I work with them all the time. Uh, although I don't always work with me, uh, we're, 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 we have things coming out this year that John Marsalis and Andrew, Andrew Simpson have scored. Um, and then, and then it's just the basic production. And sometimes if we, oh, the funding just goes and goes and goes, then I now have money to hire somebody to do, um, a digital cleanup. So I, I often work with Fed Kamarowski, um, from Cineast Restorations, and I've, uh, for the Edward Everett Horton shorts, I've worked with Ben Solovey at Origins Archival. And if you can afford uh, digital cleanup and stabilization, it's a wonderful thing. Um, if you can't, and you know, uh, then you don't. And you, you hire somebody to do grading. And so we've worked with Chris Krause, uh, who uh, Kirk, you, you work with him at the at Eastman Museum, and uh, um, so so there's there's the fundraising, there's the production. Editing, uh, cre creating new titles if needed, uh, the scoring, then uh, it all gets married together. And then there's the authoring. Uh, I've recently learned how to author Blu-rays, and that's why um, the, uh, Xander the Great is now out uh, uh, in both formats. Beverly of Graustark will be out in both formats because um, I know there are people who won't buy blue, uh, DVDs and there are people who don't have Blu-ray players. And... Uh, we will probably at some point at, later in the year try to 
do move into video on demand. So then, then there's a matter of uh, once it's all done. Uh, I work with uh, Alliance Entertainment uh, from my MOD. They're they're one of the companies. There's another one, uh, Vaughn. Uh, I forget what their full name is. Is another one uh, where they take care of all the manufacturing. They get you up on all the websites. So. Uh, I moved over to Alliance about four or five years ago, which was great because CreateSpace was just Amazon. And getting onto the other sites was really, really complicated. And you had to be a big company. So um, now that Alliance offers Blu-ray, again, it's burnt product. um, But so far, it's it's been going okay. So then there's the authoring, uh, the graphics, and then the promotion, and then that's writing up a press release and developing a, a press list, and that's that. A lot of that I have learned is about comes from developing relationships with people, whether they're bloggers or well, I don't think any major publication has anybody reviewing film anymore. But uh, getting to know who those people are, so that when you send them something, uh, they'll write about it. And and is finding finding just there's always you're looking for n- more people, but um, and then you hope for the best. But I I, I look I, I I believe in the long tail, uh, which is you know make everything available and, and that way if anybody's looking for it it's there. I'm not going to buy a yacht <laughs> with with royalties <laughs> from this. You know sometimes the royalties pay my light bill. You know and sometimes they they do a little bit better than that. I can pay my light bill and my phone bill and my wife and I can go out to dinner. Um, <laughs> but it's 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 really we're all but all of us including Ed Larusso and John Marsalis and Andrew Simpson um, and the people I've co-produced stuff with. We're all like we know there's no money in this. So if, if there's money, that's wonderful. So th- I mean that th- those th- that's a basic over overall arc. It's the, the having the idea, knowing where the print is, knowing where you can get it, knowing what it's going to cost, raising the money. Uh, then there's the production, um, post-production, and then you do the best you can with publicity. And then you see where it goes from there. And then uh, the, the dream, of, of course, is getting to license something to TCM, which I've, I've been able to do in a few cases. One of the things that really jumps out as you're talking um, – that I kind of want to, I had assumed this was going to be true for you, but hearing it live, it really resonates, uh, is that you're an amazing ambassador for what you do. You're, you have this ability to convince people that it's important because you believe it very deeply. It's not something that you're selling. Like, it's very true to you. Um, I'm curious, you know, as I, so I have, I have a background in, in studies and psychology. So one of the things that's true in that field is there were the greats, you know, there was the Freuds and the Youngs. And like, there was these people that sort of like, that set the foundation that then other psychologists kind of came along and built on uh, and, and the trade progresses, so to speak, right? And as I read your, so that's my lens on the world. So I think as I was reading your background, I saw Lee Irwin and then Ben Modell and it kind of felt like, okay, there's this sort of uh, this this legacy that's being uh, continued through yeah. you, right? Because yeah. uh, you learned from one of the greats. Uh, do you see part of what you do is helping find the next Ben Modell and kind of finding those people that can can carry it on? Do you think about that much? Um, I do, only in the sense that it hasn't happened. Because every once in a while, somebody will say at a Q&A, oh, are you training in somebody? And the answer is no. 
Um, it's not because I don't want to, but uh, so th- that that person has hasn't appeared as as, as in, ter- as in terms of film accompaniment, uh, doing kickstarts and stuff like that. Uh, I've advised several people, you know, uh, help them get over the hurdles of their f- doing their first Kickstarter or doing something uh, that they haven't done a Kickstarter for before. So I'm happy to, like, I did, I found this thing that works. Um, once you just get past the idea that you're asking a lot of people for money, um, here's how it all uh, here's how it all works, and this is way you know you can get something out there that you are you feel passionate about. Um, but it, uh, passing it, uh, something on from one generation on to the next is a big, yeah, it's a it's a big uh, part of what I do. And my wife is the same way. She's in the musical theater, but her parents were both on, on Broadway during the Golden Age, and uh, her actually my, my wife's grandfather was was uh, on the stage. He he did very little film. He's the house detective and the golf specialist, and he's the the punch drunk fighter in the thin man. Uh, but, but there's this multi-generational thing that we're passing. You know, she teaches musical theater, uh, at, at Manhattan school of music and at Barnard. And she feels like she's, um, passing something from one generation on to the next. And I feel like this, the, the same thing. Um, I am connected with a, a, a handful of younger people, uh, people who were in their teens or in college age. I mean, I met them when they were in their teens and I feel like whatever I can do to help, uh, help help them. Uh, I used to be that guy, or that 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 young woman. I used to be the, this twelve year old who didn't know anybody who liked this stuff. And so when I encounter someone um, like like that, uh, I, I I I lean in. There, I discovered. This is how I discovered what Discord is. Uh, I I wound up uh, uh, being in contact with somebody who was a regular viewer of the Silent Comedy Watch Party who said oh yeah there's a whole bunch of us and these people in there who are high school age and college age who all watch the silent comedy watch party together over a discord server i had to look up discord and now i know what that is but i i was like if there's anything i can do to help let me know i don't want to show up because you don't want dad in the room but um if there's anything i can do you know i i will periodically pick up copies of the silent clowns on on ebay or amazon and if as i meet newer, younger people um, who like this stuff, I send them a copy because it's a, a lot of people don't know about the book, The Silent Clowns. And it, because it's such an important book, uh, I, I always I, I'll send it to them. Well, I hate to speak for people, but I mean, I think Eric, maybe not so much on the music part, but at least the love of silent film, that feels like he's kind of telling your story, right? I mean, you were one of those high schoolers, right? That was just drawn to this and 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 needed that outlet to to be able to find these movies and be able to experience this early on, or maybe it was college for you. I don't remember exactly when. Yeah, for me, it was more so college. Uh, I was interested yeah. in film, and then I um started taking some film classes, and I started injecting the silent films. And um, a lot of the things you said really rings true. Like, I took a Soviet and Eastern European film class, and the first day, the, t- the professor said that just so you know, half the films we're going to watch are silent, and then the next class, half the class is gone. Like that many people dropped it and they didn't even give it a chance. So wow. that was really heartbreaking to see. Yeah. But, what was the, what was the first thing they showed you? Um, I think it was an Eisenstein film. I don't remember which one it was, it was a couple years what? back. Oh, okay. But they didn't even get to the first film. It was oh. just the intro class where they do the syllabus kind of talking about it and then never came back. So That's... I wonder if she did kind of get that foot in the door by showing something. 
was not mm. as scary, like you mentioned. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, I'm glad that they teach her. Th- well, I mean, there's so much history in, in the silent Russian films anyways. You know, it's all depictions of, of of revolutions and stuff like that. So, you know, you can't, it's all part of the cultural history anyway. So, yeah, but that, oh, I'm sorry to hear that everybody just, half the class bails when they heard it was silent, black and white. Yeah. But that, I mean, it takes it takes that to, to find half the class that can stay. Right. And, and fall in love with this because they experience it. Yeah. And I think that's the work that it, at least it feels like to me, like I, I'm a good case study for somebody who I think left to my own proclivities would not see silent films because of everything that all the biases that we were talking about early on. And as I see them, I, it, the, one of the things that sounds so dumb to say this, but one of the things that jumps out on this, to me is that there's not really as big of a separation as, as you think, like it, the jokes are funny the emotional beats are, are there and the dramas, uh, the way people talk sometimes is very natural, even with the titles, uh, the intertitles. And I just, these are some things that I, I was surprised by. And I wish those biases weren't there because uh, there's actually a lot of humanity in silent films and a lot of ways to easily connect emotionally, even though it's a different format than we're accustomed to. Yeah, definitely. Um, so, um, we have, uh, we asked for 30 or 40 minutes and you've been so gracious to give us a lot more. Um, uh, you know, Kirk, Eric is, uh, I want to, the last question I have for you is going to be around kind of what's next for you. And I want to make time for that before we get to that Kirk, Eric, is there anything else that uh, you're burning to ask uh, why we have Ben on the line? Hmm. You actually answered a lot of my questions just while like talking. Okay. Like I talk, so you answered like a lot of them. <laughs> okay. Um, so that, worked out very well oh okay i was gonna say yeah most of my most of my points i wanted to hit are uh covered so oh okay all right wonderful all right okay Um, so so then yeah what's what's next i mean just at a quick look at uh silentfilmmusic.com there's five or six concurrent projects um that you're that you're working on is there any that you'd like to highlight do you want to talk about all of them the floor is yours like what what's coming up do you want people to know about yeah, sure. Uh, I need to update my website because none of my perform my my in person performances and streams for the last few months are there or anything that I've got coming up. Um, uh, in addition to going back to in person shows, uh, there are a number of DVD and Blu Ray projects that we have in the hopper. So one of them is the Beverly of Graustark, which is the 4K restoration that the Library of Congress did that was shown in October 2019 in Porta Nona, and uh, it's a great film. It's so much fun. Um, it's the first one of her films that that is a comedy and not a light drama with some comic elements and a lot of costumes. It's the mm-hmm. first one that feels like, oh, this is like Show People in the Patsy. Uh, directed by Sidney Franklin. Great cast. Creighton Hale. Antonio Moreno. Uh, Roy Darcy, uh, and the original two-color Technicolor ending is intact. Uh, so that is something that will be out, uh, I think, in April or May on Blu-ray and DVD. Um, also, uh, I'm working with John Marsalis on a release of uh, a second volume of Lon Chaney Before the Thousand Faces, which we did one with him a oh, few wow. years ago. So this is early Lon Chaney uh, films uh, that he made in the teens at Universal and other, and other studios. And this will be a two-disc set. Um, 
there's you know John's has gathered that much material. Um, we are working on a restoration of the craving, the Francis Ford feature. Uh, Kathy Fuller, Fuller, Kathy Fuller Seely at the UT Austin. Uh, that's her project. Um, we've gotten the file from iFilm Museum, and it's been cleaned up and stabilized, and looks great. And we're now working on translating the titles back into English. And there are a few shorts on that, one of which we got from the George Eastman Museum, um, Unmasked. Um, and so we're, we've gotten we've gotten that from there and uh, a couple of a short uh, shorts that from the US, USC, the Hefner Archive and Library of Congress. So there's that project. Um, Andrew Simpson did a Kickstarter for a film called Back Pay, which is an early Frank Borzaghi film written by Francis Marion. Mm-hmm. And this is the thing where he played for it and really just he, Andrew played for the film and really liked it and so he did this Kickstarter and again it, the funding went on and on and he's added a film called Valley of Silent Men which is another Borzaghi picture both of these films only survived because they were produced by Cosmopolitan Productions and therefore were part of the Marion Davies collection so you don't think of Marion Davies as a film uh, uh, um, uh, conservationist but there's a lot of silent film that only survives because uh, Hearst produced it and she had prints of it that went to the Library of Congress in the 50s. Oh. Um, we are, what else? I know there's something else I'm blanking on. Um, and and the next Kickstarter uh, is is uh, is going to be for a pair of Raymond Griffith features. Um, these have been scanned in, in 2 or 4K from Nitrate uh, by the Library of Congress. That'll be my next Kickstarter. Um, Raymond Griffith is it, it, arguably the fifth head on the Mount Rushmore of silent comedy, and um, uh, uh, and, and his films just haven't been available. And this was something where I was able to get permission from Paramount. They were because uh, they're part of the studio collection. So that that's the next thing. That and a pair of Tom Mix features. Uh, Tom Mix's films have never been on home video. I don't know why. But that is also the state of silent westerns. I don't think Bill Hart's Hart films have hardly been on, uh, and you know the rest, all the other silent movie western stars like Hoot Gibson. You know, aside from things on Alpha and Grapevine. Um, so uh, a lot, a lot, a lot of different, a lot of different things. And what's been great is going back into in-person stuff. I'm getting to meet people who've been watching the silent comedy watch party for two years, and they have pins and this shirt or a t-shirt or mugs and uh they wave at me with one hand when i get up and take my bow and uh it's been great connecting with with folks who've who've connected with me that and me and mana and steve and susan and crystal and marlene uh on online that way and oh i'm sure there's something i'm i'm blanking on but um uh it's it's uh it's it's been great to have the opportunity to work together with fans to get these things out from from film cans to film fans, as I as I like to say. Um, there and that, like as you the you three uh, have experienced there, as much as people tell you, oh, I can stream that and streaming this and cutting the cord. There's there are there are definitely lots and lots of people who do. Uh, buy physical media and like to have things on a shelf uh, in some sort of order. 
I always say no one, no collector will hold up any terabyte hard drive and say, look, it's my film collection. You know, <laughs> you know, there, there's just something about just the, just browsing and looking at a shelf of stuff. So um, it's, it's, uh, uh, it's, it's it's uh, it's been great to get to, to get to be able to do this and to help people discover uh, silent filmmakers and and performers like like Marcel Perez who are 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 just unknown until now. And and the best thing for you is if they shop at undercrankproductions.com as these discs come out, right? Um, I my royalties are the same no matter where you buy the product, but. Okay. Uh, but if you go to undercrankproductions.com first and then click, then it helps my SEO. So that's great. <laughs> if you go to <laughs> undercrankproductions and click your way to other stuff, uh, but my 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 releases are are on a everything: Amazon, Deep Disc, on Critics Choice, Movies Unlimited, uh, uh, internationally on Wow HD, um, and lots and lots and lots and lots of other places. And if I ever get you know to a, a movie theater to do a show i'll pr i'll bring them to sell at the merch table <laughs> oh cool yeah wonderful uh well thank you so much uh this has been an education for me uh and i think it's fun to hear you and kirk and and eric kind of talk and and uh, uh amazing thank you so much yeah. for making this time yeah thanks thanks for having me on my 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 website silent film music my podcast is the silent film music podcast uh and i'm on all the various social media at at the at sign at silent film music and so i'm eminently findable if you have questions and want to look up and see what i'm up to but uh eric and kirk and chris thanks so much for having me on and thinking thinking of me and, and thinking of having me on your show 